Chapter Two, Part Two of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Two, Part Two. Four. King William could not away with his sister-in-law, and the Duchess fully returned his antipathy. Without considerable tact and considerable forbearance, their relative positions were well calculated to cause ill-feeling, and there was very little tact in the composition of the Duchess, and no forbearance at all in that of His Majesty. A bursting, bubbling old gentleman, with quarter-deck gestures, round-rolling eyes, and a head like a pineapple, his sudden elevation to the throne, after fifty-six years of utter insignificance, had almost sent him crazy. His natural exuberance completely got the best of him. He rushed about doing preposterous things in an extraordinary manner, spreading amusement and terror in every direction, and talking all the time. His tongue was decidedly Hanoverian, with its repetitions, its catchwords, that's quite another thing, that's quite another thing, its rattling indomitability, its loud indiscreetness. His speeches, made repeatedly at the most inopportune junctures, and filled pell-mell with all the fancies and furies that happened at the moment to be whisking about in his head, were the consternation of ministers. He was one part blackguard, people said, and three parts buffoon. But those who knew him better could not help liking him. He meant well, and he was really good-humoured and kind-hearted, if you took him the right way. If you took him the wrong way, however, you must look out for squalls, as the Duchess of Kent discovered. She had no notion of how to deal with him, could not understand him in the least. Occupied with her own position, her own responsibilities, her duty and her daughter, she had no attention to spare for the peppery susceptibilities of a foolish, disreputable old man. She was the mother of the heiress of England, and it was for him to recognize the fact, to put her at once on a proper footing, to give her the precedence of a dowager princess of Wales with a large annuity from the privy purse. It did not occur to her that such pretensions might be galling to a king who had no legitimate child of his own, and who yet had not altogether abandoned the hope of having one. She pressed on with bulky vigour along the course she had laid out. Sir John Conroy, an Irishman with no judgment and a great deal of self-importance, was her intimate counsellor and egged her on. It was advisable that Victoria should become acquainted with the various districts of England, and through several summers a succession of tours— in the West, in the Midlands, in Wales, were arranged for her. The intention of the plan was excellent, but its execution was unfortunate. The journeys, advertised in the press, attracting enthusiastic crowds and involving official receptions, took on the air of royal progresses. Addresses were presented by loyal citizens. The delighted Duchess, swelling in sweeping feathers and almost obliterating the diminutive princess, read aloud in her German accent gracious replies prepared beforehand by Sir John, who, 
bustling and ridiculous, seemed to be mingling the roles of major-domo and prime minister. Naturally, the king fumed over his newspaper at Windsor. "'That woman is a nuisance!' he exclaimed. Poor Queen Adelaide, amiable though disappointed, did her best to smooth things down, change the subject, and wrote affectionate letters to Victoria. But it was useless. News arrived that the Duchess of Kent, sailing in the Solent, had insisted that whenever her yacht appeared it should be received by royal salutes from all the men of war and all the forts. The king declared that these continual poppings must cease. The premier and the first lord of the admiralty were consulted, and they wrote privately to the duchess, begging her to waive her rights. But she would not hear of it. Sir John Conroy was adamant. As Her Royal Highness's confidential adviser, he said, I cannot recommend her to give way on this point. Eventually, the King, in a great state of excitement, issued a special order in council, prohibiting the firing of royal salutes to any ships except those which carried the reigning sovereign or his consort on board. When King William quarrelled with his Whig ministers, the situation grew still more embittered, for now the Duchess, in addition to her other shortcomings, was the political partisan of his enemies. In 1836 he made an attempt to prepare the ground for a match between the Princess Victoria and one of the sons of the Prince of Orange, and at the same time did his best to prevent the visit of the young Coburg princes to Kensington. He failed in both these objects, and the only result of his efforts was to raise the anger of the King of the Belgians, who, forgetting for a moment his royal reserve, addressed an indignant letter on the subject to his niece. "'I am really astonished,' he wrote, "'at the conduct of your old uncle the King. This invitation of the Prince of Orange and his sons, this forcing him on others, is very extraordinary.' Not later than yesterday I got a half-official communication from England insinuating that it would be highly desirable that the visit of your relatives should not take place this year. Qu'en dites-vous? The relations of the Queen and King, therefore, to the God knows what degree, are to come in shoals and rule the land when your relations are to be forbidden the country and that when, as you know, the whole of your relations have ever been very dutiful and kind to the king. Really and truly, I never heard or saw anything like it, and I hope it will a little rouse your spirit. Now that slavery is even abolished in the British colonies, I do not comprehend why your lot alone should be to be kept a white little slavey in England, for the pleasure of the court who never bought you as I am not aware of their ever having gone to any expense on that head, or the king's ever having spent a sixpence for your existence. Oh, consistency and political or other honesty, where must one look for you? Shortly afterwards, King Leopold came to England himself, and his reception was as cold at Windsor as it was warm at Kensington. To hear dear uncle speak on any subject, the princess wrote in her diary, is like reading a highly instructive book. His conversation is so enlightened, so clear. 
he is universally admitted to be one of the first politicians now extant. He speaks so mildly, yet firmly and impartially, about politics. Uncle tells me that Belgium is quite a pattern for its organization, its industry, and prosperity. The finances are in the greatest perfection. Uncle is so beloved and revered by his Belgian subjects that it must be a great compensation for all his extreme trouble. But her other uncle by no means shared her sentiments. He could not, he said, put up with a water-drinker, and King Leopold would touch no wine. "'What's that you're drinking, sir?' he asked him one day at dinner. "'Water, sir.' "'God damn it, sir,' was the rejoinder. "'Why don't you drink wine? I never allow anybody to drink water at my table.' It was clear that before very long there would be a great explosion, and in the hot days of August it came. The Duchess and the Princess had gone down to stay at Windsor for the King's birthday party, and the King himself, who was in London for the day to prorogue Parliament, paid a visit at Kensington Palace in their absence. There he found that the Duchess had just appropriated, against his express orders, a suite of seventeen apartments for her own use. He was extremely angry, and when he returned to Windsor after greeting the Princess with affection, he publicly rebuked the Duchess for what she had done. But this was little to what followed. On the next day was the birthday banquet. There were a hundred guests. The Duchess of Kent sat on the King's right hand, and the Princess Victoria opposite. At the end of the dinner, in reply to the toast of the King's health, he rose, and in a long, loud, passionate speech, poured out the vials of his wrath upon the Duchess. She had, he declared, insulted him, grossly and continually. She had kept the princess away from him in the most improper manner. She was surrounded by evil advisers, and was incompetent to act with propriety in the high station which she filled. But he would bear it no longer. He would have her to know he was king. He was determined that his authority should be respected. Henceforward the princess should attend at every court function with the utmost regularity, and he hoped to God that his life might be spared for six months longer so that the calamity of a regency might be avoided, and the functions of the crown passed directly to the heiress presumptive instead of into the hands of the person now near him upon whose conduct and capacity no reliance whatever could be placed. The flood of vituperation rushed on for what seemed an interminable period, while the queen blushed scarlet, the princess burst into tears, and the hundred guests sat aghast. The duchess said not a word until the tirade was over and the company had retired. Then, in a tornado of rage and mortification, she called for her carriage and announced her immediate return to Kensington. It was only with the utmost difficulty that some show of a reconciliation was patched up, and the outraged lady was prevailed upon to put off her departure till the morrow. Her troubles, however, were not over when she had shaken the dust of Windsor from her feet. In her own household she was pursued by bitterness and vexation of spirit. The apartments at Kensington were seething with subdued disaffection, with jealousies and animosities virulently intensified by long years of propinquity and spite. 
There was a deadly feud between Sir John Conroy and Baroness Lehzen, but that was not all. The Duchess had grown too fond of her major-domo. There were familiarities, and one day the Princess Victoria discovered the fact. She confided what she had seen to the Baroness and to the Baroness's beloved ally, Madame de Spath. Unfortunately, Madame de Spath could not hold her tongue, and was actually foolish enough to reprove the Duchess, whereupon she was instantly dismissed. It was not so easy to get rid of the Baroness. That lady, prudent and reserved, maintained an irreproachable demeanour. Her position was strongly entrenched. She had managed to secure the support of the King, and Sir John found that he could do nothing against her but henceforward the household was divided into two camps. Note. Greville, 421 and August 15, 1839, unpublished. The cause of the Queen's alienation from the Duchess and hatred of Conroy, the Duke of Wellington said, was unquestionably owing to her having witnessed some familiarities between them. What she had seen she repeated to Baroness Spate, and Spate not only did not hold her tongue, but, he thinks, remonstrated with the Duchess herself on the subject. The consequence was that they got rid of Spate, and they would have got rid of Leitzen, too, if they had been able. But Leitzen, who knew very well what was going on, was prudent enough not to commit herself, and who was, besides, powerfully protected by George the Fourth and William the Fourth, so that they did not dare to attempt to expel her. End of note. The Duchess supported Sir John with all the abundance of her authority, but the Baroness, too, had an adherent who could not be neglected. The Princess Victoria said nothing, but she had been much attached to Madame de Spath, and she adored her Leitzen. The Duchess knew only too well that in this horrid embroilment her daughter was against her. Chagrin, annoyance, moral reprobation tossed her to and fro. She did her best to console herself with Sir John's affectionate loquacity, or with the sharp remarks of Lady Flora Hastings, one of her maids of honour, who had no love for the Baroness. The subject lent itself to satire, for the pastor's daughter, with all her airs of stiff superiority, had habits which betrayed her origin. Her passion for caraway seeds, for instance, was uncontrollable. Little bags of them came over to her from Hanover, and she sprinkled them on her bread and butter, her cabbage, and even her roast beef. Lady Flora could not resist a caustic observation. It was repeated to the Baroness, who pursed her lips in fury, and so the mischief grew. 5. The King had prayed that he might live till his niece was of age and a few days before her eighteenth birthday, the date of her legal majority, a sudden attack of illness very nearly carried him off. He recovered, however, and the princess was able to go through her birthday festivities, a state ball and a drawing-room, with unperturbed enjoyment. Count Zicky, she noted in her diary, is very good-looking in uniform, but not in plain clothes. Count Waldstein looks remarkably well in his pretty Hungarian uniform. With the latter young gentleman she wished to dance, but there was an insurmountable difficulty. He could not dance quadrilles, and as in my station I unfortunately cannot valse and gallop, 
I could not dance with him. Her birthday present from the king was of a pleasing nature, but it led to a painful domestic scene. In spite of the anger of her Belgian uncle, she had remained upon good terms with her English one. He had always been very kind to her, and the fact that he had quarrelled with her mother did not appear to be a reason for disliking him. He was, she said, odd, very odd and singular, but his intentions were often ill-interpreted. He now wrote her a letter, offering her an allowance of ten thousand pounds a year, which he proposed should be at her own disposal and independent of her mother. Lord Conningham, the Lord Chamberlain, was instructed to deliver the letter into the princess's own hands. When he arrived at Kensington, he was ushered into the presence of the Duchess and the Princess, and, when he produced the letter, the Duchess put out her hand to take it. Lord Conningham begged Her Royal Highness's pardon, and repeated the King's commands. Thereupon the Duchess drew back, and the Princess took the letter. She immediately wrote to her uncle, accepting his kind proposal. The Duchess was much displeased. Four thousand pounds a year, she said, would be quite enough for Victoria. As for the remaining six thousand pounds, it would be only proper that she should have that herself. King William had thrown off his illness and returned to his normal life. Once more the royal circle at Windsor, their majesties, the elder princesses, and some unfortunate ambassadress or minister's wife, might be seen ranged for hours round a mahogany table, while the queen netted a purse and the king slept, occasionally waking from his slumbers to observe, "'Exactly so, ma'am, exactly so.' But this recovery was of short duration. The old man suddenly collapsed with no specific symptoms besides an extreme weakness. He yet showed no power of rallying, and it was clear to everyone that his death was now close at hand. All eyes, all thoughts, turned toward the Princess Victoria, but she still remained shut away in the seclusion of Kensington, a small, unknown figure lost in the large shadow of her mother's domination. The preceding year had in fact been an important one in her development. The soft tendrils of her mind had for the first time begun to stretch out towards unchildish things. In this King Leopold encouraged her. After his return to Brussels he had resumed his correspondence in a more serious strain. He discussed the details of foreign politics. He laid down the duties of kingship. He pointed out the iniquitous foolishness of the newspaper press. On the latter subject, indeed, he wrote with some asperity, If all the editors, he said, of the papers in the countries where the liberty of the press exists were to be assembled, we should have a crew to which you would not confide a dog that you would value, still less your honor and reputation. On the functions of a monarch his views were unexceptionable. The business of the highest in a state, he wrote, is certainly, in my opinion, to act with great impartiality and a spirit of justice for the good of all. At the same time, the princess's tastes were opening out. Though she was still passionately devoted to writing and dancing, she now began to have a genuine love of music as well, and to drink in the roulade and arias of the Italian opera with high enthusiasm. She even enjoyed reading poetry, at any rate the poetry of Sir Walter Scott. 
When King Leopold learnt that King William's death was approaching, he wrote several long letters of excellent advice to his niece. "'In every letter I shall write to you,' he said, "'I mean to repeat to you, as a fundamental rule, to be firm and courageous and honest, as you have been till now.' For the rest, in the crisis that was approaching, she was not to be alarmed, but to trust in her good natural sense and the truth of her character. She was to do nothing in a hurry, to hurt no one's amour propre, and to continue her confidence in the Whig administration. Not content with letters, however, King Leopold determined that the princess should not lack personal guidance, and sent over to her aid the trusted friend whom, twenty years before, he had taken to his heart by the deathbed at Claremont. Thus, once again, as if in accordance with some preordained destiny, the figure of Stockmar is discernible, inevitably present at a momentous hour. On June 18th, the king was visibly sinking. The Archbishop of Canterbury was by his side, with all the comforts of the church. Nor did the holy words fall upon a rebellious spirit. For many years his majesty had been a devout believer, when I was a young man, he once explained at a public banquet, as well as I can remember, I believed in nothing but pleasure and folly, nothing at all. But when I went to sea, got into a gale, and saw the wonders of the mighty deep, then I believed, and I have been a sincere Christian ever since. It was the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, and the dying man remembered it. He should be glad to live, he said, over that day. He would never see another sunset. I hope your majesty may live to see many, said Dr. Chambers. Oh, that's quite another thing, that's quite another thing, was the answer. One other sunset he did live to see, and he died in the early hours of the following morning. It was on June twentieth, 1837. When all was over, the Archbishop and the Lord Chamberlain ordered a carriage and drove post-haste from Windsor to Kensington. They arrived at the palace at five o'clock, and it was only with considerable difficulty that they gained admittance. At six the Duchess woke up her daughter, and told her that the Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Conningham were there and wished to see her. She got out of bed, put on her dressing-gown, and went alone into the room where the messengers were standing. Lord Conningham fell on his knees, and officially announced the death of the King. The Archbishop added some personal details. Looking at the bending, murmuring dignitaries before her, she knew that she was Queen of England. Since it has pleased Providence, she wrote that day in her journal, to place me in this station, I shall do my utmost to fulfill my duty towards my country. I am very young, and perhaps in many, though not in all things, inexperienced, but I am sure that very few have more real good will and more real desire to do what is fit and right than I have. But there was scant time for resolutions and reflections. At once affairs were thick upon her. Stockmar came to breakfast and gave some good advice. She wrote a letter to her uncle Leopold and a hurried note to her sister Feodora. A letter came from the Prime Minister Lord Melbourne, announcing his approaching arrival. He came at nine in full court dress and kissed her hand. She saw him alone, and repeated to him the lesson which, no doubt, the faithful Stockmar had taught her at breakfast. 
It has long been my intention to retain your lordship and the rest of the present ministry at the head of affairs. Whereupon Lord Melbourne again kissed her hand, and shortly after left her. She then wrote a letter of condolence to Queen Adelaide. At eleven Lord Melbourne came again, and at half-past eleven she went downstairs into the Red Saloon to hold her first council. The great assembly of lords and notables, bishops, generals, and ministers of state saw the doors thrown open, and a very short, very slim girl, in deep plain mourning, come into the room alone, and move forward to her seat with extraordinary dignity and grace. They saw a countenance, not beautiful, but prepossessing, fair hair, blue prominent eyes, a small curved nose, an open mouth revealing the upper teeth, a tiny chin, a clear complexion, and over all the strangely mingled signs of innocence, of gravity, of youth, and of composure. They heard a high, unwavering voice reading aloud with perfect clarity, and then the ceremony was over. They saw the small figure rise, and with the same consummate grace, the same amazing dignity, pass out from among them as she had come in, alone. End of chapter 2, part 2